Welcome to Jaws of Justice Radio on 90.1 FM KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. It's Monday morning. My name is Terry. Today, David Bell hosts Andrew R. Gustafson, a historian and curator at the Johnson County Museum, and they'll have a discussion on the red-lined exhibit. During the conversation, David and Andrew will talk about how our choices today, from where we live to where we work to who we socialize with on the weekends, are dictated by the past. Redlined Cities, Suburbs, Segregation is an exhibit at the museum, and it takes visitors on a deep dive into the history of redlining and how it shaped Johnson County and the region. Visitors will learn about the 19th and century foundations of redlining, how the private practice became federal policy during the Great Depression, how it expanded during post-war suburbanization, and that attempts to dismantle the system began during the Civil Rights era. We can look at how legacies of redlining continue to impact communities around the nation today. The word redlining has come to mean racial discrimination of any kind in housing. David and Andrew will talk about a new future for our community, hopefully a future that has no racial dividing lines. We're all in this together. We bring you vital information underserved or ignored by mainstream media. We pride ourselves on digging in and sharing the issues that entertain and inform our listeners. On Jaws of Justice, we examine how to find justice in our society. Justice will not be served until those who are unaffected are as outraged as those who are. Now, our show. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. You know, a few weeks ago, I was biking on a recumbent, and a recumbent is a a bicycle that sits on what I'll call regular size wheels. My body's slightly rotated, but other than that, there really is no difference. My feet are out front of me. So I'm biking with a group of families out on Indian Creek Trail, and uh, a little girl in one of the families pulls up next to me, and looks at my bike, and then looks at me and says, why do you ride a bike like that? And I was actually thinking about this show and some of the themes that we're gonna be talking about today, and so I, I looked to her and I said, well, why do you ride a bike like that? And I don't know if I was expecting some, some incredible conversation, but of course that was not to happen because she then turned and looked back to me and just repeated back what I had said to her, which is, why do you ride a bike like that? She then scurried off ahead and of course she couldn't hear my answer, but the reason uh, I ride the bike I ride, or perhaps she rides the bike she rides, was in 1933 in Paris, a recumbent rider beat an upright bicycle rider in a one hour time trial. And in 1934, a year later, the UCI, which is a governing body, I believe, still for the Tour de France, uh, at one of their meetings, the manufacturers of upright bicycles lobbied to have that record by the recumbent cyclist removed from the record books. And they were successful. And then they went one step further, and they lobbied to have the definition of bicycle changed, and changed in such a way that what I ride today is no longer considered a bicycle. And that's why when you look at races all over the world, you won't see the type of bike I ride because it is no longer, at least as of 1934, considered a bike. You know, right now as you're listening to this show, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. Why do you live where you live? Why do you work where you work, associate with the people you do? How did you even get to work today? Why did you choose that route? And let me remind you of something before you answer too quickly with I chose to. 
you know, if I get to choose where we go to dinner uh, from a list provided from my wife, I'm getting to choose, I guess, but she's provided that list to me. So my question back to you is, who really chose? With that, we welcome our guest today, Andrew Gustafson, Curator of Interpretation at Johnson County Museum, and we're going to talk today about redlining. And as we talk about this subject, a really fascinating subject, one that I think continues to need to be talked about today, I want you to think about some of the questions that I brought up at the beginning. And with that, we welcome Andrew. Andrew, thank you for being here today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. And you are at the Johnson County Museum. That's right. Yep, in Overland Park, the old King Louis West. Right. And I spent many days there uh, uh, playing pool, uh, bowling, video games, and... Uh, Ice skating. Uh, ice skating. I did occasionally, not, not the best falling. ice skating. That's right, ice falling. I like, <laughs> I like that. So you helped put together an exhibit, which uh, recently closed, actually, after a, after a really significant run called Redlined. And if you could very briefly talk about that, and then we're going to dive into some questions about kind of a, what, what gave rise to redlining and how the process proceeded, but just a basic description, if you could, right now. Yeah, so the exhibit um, was up for 49 weeks, uh, our 55th anniversary year as a museum, and it really delved into this really long history of redlining, which we defined as the systematic disinvestment in some people in neighborhoods in favor of others, so other people getting investment in their neighborhoods and them as people, with that decision being made largely on the basis of race. Um, and so um, it starts with private industry, becomes a federal policy, and then really shapes the way our communities look. And this exhibit went from the Civil War, just after the Civil War, all the way up to the modern era, looking at legacies of this pretty short-lived federal policy, 34 years uh, as a federal policy. You know, I grew up in Johnson County, and then when I came back from law school, I lived in Johnson County for some war. And, and, uh, and I have to tell you, one thing I was kind of impressed by so far, in addition to all the resources you provided, and I've been through, and we'll, we'll publicize those at the end, was the willingness of the Johnson County Museum to kind of hold a mirror up to itself in a way. Explain that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, so if you've been to the museum, our, our main exhibit, Becoming Johnson County, it looks at the long history of the county. So from before its founding in 1855 all the way up through the modern era. And we look at all eras of history. Um, history is not necessarily flattering or not flattering. There's all sorts of things. People have always been complex, right? Um, and so uh, we've talked about redlining in the main exhibit um, since we've been in this building and even before, it's been five years. Um, but we really wanted to take a deep dive into suburbanization, the creation of the suburbs. And when we got into the research, we realized you can't do that without talking about sort of what's happening in cities that's allowing suburbanization to take place. Um, and so, so diving into that topic of redlining, the investment in some areas in the suburbs and that disinvestment or, or no money going to or extraction of money from um, downtown neighborhoods. And so I know we talked about when you and I met before about some of the questions that you wanted to to ask and potentially answer, what were some of those questions? Yeah, why do our communities look the way they do? Um, why do people live where they are? You sort of ask some of these at the beginning of the show. And I think we all think what you were saying, that there's choice there. And of course there is choice, especially today, right? Fairly long removed from this, from this history. Um, and yet there are things that have shaped that and there are forces that uh, shaped it in history and there are legacies of that today. There's unquestioned assumptions at the beginning of this history, in the middle of this history, and in the era we're living in, the legacies of this history. These unquestioned assumptions still um, define for us what communities look like, who comprises communities in different areas and things. And again, you know, we're talking about Kansas City and Johnson County as a lens into this history, but this is a national history, cities and suburbs 
across the nation um, have very similar legacies from this from this history. I, I like the term you use, unquestioned assumptions. One of the the reasons I enjoy interviewing individuals like you, studying the topics that we we, we study, is that going and 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 looking at what our unquestioned assumptions are, so that whatever we're choosing now, it's an intentional choice. Mm-hmm. Right, we're not just kind of going along because we did it before. Whatever we're doing, we're making the best of the life we have today, and we're doing it intentionally. I think it, that's the what I take from the term you're using. Yeah, yeah, and I think that you know, there's something with that intent or intentional word too that was surprising to us as staff as we went through this history, the creation of the system of redlining, of that disinvestment. It was very intentional. There are choices that are being made. There are things that are being defined. There are systems being put in place, organizations that are being created, policies that are being drafted that are pretty explicit and pretty intentional, right? It's not accidental um, the way communities developed. There was planning involved in that. And in this case, that planning was around residential segregation, right. um, segregating communities um, by color or race. But, but I, was, I was looking through it, and we'll start uh, with the Great Migration, but as I was looking, uh, reading the book that you published or the Johnson County Museum uh, published about the exhibit, which is a wonderful book, uh, and looking at, you know, I, I almost want to look at one. I almost want to find like the Lex Luthor of 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 it, and 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 and, and that is a simplistic view, of course. There, there may be individuals out there that had certainly uh, more of an intention to do this than others. There may be homeowners that moved for a variety of reasons. But it seems to be a confluence of a number of different factors. Like I think you said, history is just, I, I can't find the one bad actor. There's, there's, there's enough to spread around. There's enough reasons to spread around. Yeah, people are complex, right? People are Today, complex. It is a past, yeah. Um, and, you know, locally there was uh, somebody who's, who's uh, contributing to this national history, uh, J.C. Nichols. Mm-hmm. I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the name, right? Somebody who was born in Johnson County. Um, who started uh, in the sort of emerging real estate industry in the early 1900s in Kansas City. Um, And then in the 19-teens and 20s and 30s is really very involved on the national level in these real estate organizations that are are emerging. Um, NAREB, the National Association of Real Estate Boards, um, the Urban Land Institute, some of these other organizations. And through his membership and leadership and um, speeches and things in these organizations is, is shaping the way this profession of being a real estate professional, whether you're buying and selling homes or developing neighborhoods or, or subdividing land, um, is really shaping how they're operating. Um, and he and a handful of other people are are pretty intimately, um, they're writing letters back and forth, they're very involved in, in shaping some legal ideas around segregation that we can get into. Sure. Well, and, and so let's talk about one of the, a, a few things that were going on as I understand it. And is that first of all, you have the Great Migration, if you could yeah. explain that. And then also, uh, from reading your the book uh, that, that the museum put out, and also another book that you'd recommended, there was this, the real estate industry was kind of undeveloped in the early 1900s. It was, there was a lot of speculation. I think people were getting taken for, uh, uh, almost it sounded like a, like a fake stock market almost, where people were investing money and it was kind of disappearing. And so there was an intention at that point also to kind of regulate, to make it more of a uh, uh, honorable profession, I guess. And so you have the Great Migration, you have that. If you could briefly talk about those two influences first, and then we'll talk about how the real estate industry kind of formed. Um, yeah, so uh, in, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, people are moving to cities, um, right? After the Civil War, agriculture is starting to wane in places. Cities are, are really growing with industry. 
we have the Great Migration happening. So this is the mass movement of African-Americans from the agricultural south to industrial cities in the Northeast and Midwest. So places like Harlem and Chicago, Detroit, and Kansas City. Um, Kansas City received tens of thousands of black migrants over the period from about 1910, a little earlier, to about 1970. So a fairly long period of time, but tens of thousands of people coming into a city that's growing, right? Places like Chicago and New York City received hundreds of thousands of black migrants into their into their um, residential districts. Uh, and so this starts to shape the city. People start to react against these black migrants setting up neighborhoods uh, or, or pushing black migrants into neighborhoods like in Kansas City, the 18th and Vine District, which was a much larger district, 12th to 18th and Vine, um, the segregated area of town. Right. And as more and more people are coming into that area, that area begins to be overcrowded. Um, conditions were never the best to begin with in segregated areas. But with overcrowding, you get dilapidation, you get unsanitary conditions, unsafe conditions. Um, and so those areas begin to be noted for their their bad conditions, right? Uh, and that begins to be tied to blackness, to race, right? Um, as opposed to something that those folks are forced to endure, it's it's a characteristic themselves, mm -hmm. people are saying. And this is coming out of progressive movement era, right? Um, trying to add order to society and, and reform things that are in society. But there's some real racial and also ethnic things, um, xenophobic things. Um, tied to the progressive movement in the early 20th century. And part of that progressive movement is the real estate industry. So we can think of things like, you know, food safety laws and child labor laws and all these things coming out of the progressive movement, right? That's probably what we think of, but also the professionalization of, of industry. So the American Medical Association really had been around longer, but certainly uh, forms uh, as a professional organization in this era. Same with the real estate industry. And so uh, in some part, reacting to what's happening in cities, in some parts, um, the history you were describing of, of speculation and, and people um, taking advantage of others through real estate. This organization forms in Chicago in 1908, the National Association of Real Estate Boards. Um, I already uh, mentioned it briefly uh, to define what it means to be a real estate professional. And as part of that, they create a code of ethics um, in 1924. And in, in that year, they created earlier, but in that year, they add in one that says, Real estate people shouldn't be instrumental in introducing a race or class of person who'd be detrimental to property values. From this organization, there's this idea being created um, and, and proliferated that race and value, skin color and property value are somehow connected. This is being spread through textbooks that are being published for this new real estate industry. It's being spread in annual meetings and presentations that the industry is giving for its own professionals but also being spread through magazines, newspapers, and interpersonal dealings. People buying and selling homes and property, real estate professionals are sharing this idea. Well, you'll want to buy where you know, white people are living so your value's intact, right? Um, and so this unquestioned assumption, because it's unfounded, there's never any statistical analysis you know, that's published or any economic report that's done to prove that there's a connection between race and value. Um, but that idea is this unquestioned assumption coming out of this new professional organization that you can trust, right? Um, that starts to shape how people are thinking about where they should live, where they should buy property. The idea of property is an investment, um, that there's something inherently American about owning a piece of America, right? Owning a, a home or a piece of property. This is all coming out at the same time. And, and I got the impression also that at the time, and I, I want to read from the Code of Ethics because it's fascinating. Uh, I, at, the, at the time, that certainly... There was uh, racism existed. We say we're coming oh, up with yeah. slavery, whatever. But but I got the impression at the time though that if you had the money, you could live where your money would would purchase. Meaning, if I if you're selling your house for hundred dollars and I've got a hundred dollars, 
we're going to do a deal regardless of whatever. There may still be a little bit of barriers, but it wasn't a structural barrier yet. Is that? Yeah, that's true. Most cities prior to the Great Migration were arranged by economic class, really, so um, um, income levels. So if you worked in a factory, whether you were black or uh, Italian or Irish or, you know, you'd been in the United States for a long time or, or a recent immigrant, you might be living near that factory, right? If you were wealthy, um, and had the money to purchase sort of outside of that downtown area, away from those factories, your neighborhood would be fairly integrated. Um, pockets of, of um, African-Americans, pockets of immigrants, certainly, but uh, spread across the community. But the Great Migration and reactions against that Great Migration really shift that to hardline segregation, to defined areas of town where, um, you know, in Kansas City, we're talking about black and white, but in other areas of the country, we might be talking about Latinos or Asian Americans or um, even Jewish populations, yeah. right? Um, so pockets of um, groups like that in defined areas and, and with controlled boundaries, defined boundaries. Um, that's really the, the key that's coming out of this era. Let, let me uh, read from the 1924 Realtor Code of Ethics that you brought up. This is the preamble. Under all is the land. Upon the wise, upon its wise utilization, widely allocated ownership depend the survival of growth of free institutions and of our civilization. It goes on with the with the same type of grandiose language, and then continues in the interpretation of his obligations. Talking about the realtor, he can take no safer guide than that which has been handed down through twenty centuries, embodied in the golden rule: Whatsoever ye would that men should do unto you, do ye also unto them. And then if we scroll down a little bit farther to Article 34, it set, commands the realtor, a realtor should never be instrumental in introducing into a neighborhood a character of property or occupancy, members of any race or nationality, or any individuals whose presence will clearly be detrimental to the property values in that neighborhood. You know, what's, what's, what I found amazing about that preamble, and there's, again, the language goes on. I skipped over or some of it. But the juxtaposition of the two, it's almost like we're doing God's work here, right? We have this noble purpose, this noble cause. I mean, they're citing the golden rule in here, and then, and then you have this but. We have to be mindful that people of certain races are going to bring property values down. How, how, help me understand, if you can at least, from your studying that kind of juxtaposition of those two seeming inconsistent positions. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, um, I think it's really indicative of the progressive movement. So you have people who are doing things that we can we can look at in some ways as being um, sort of beneficial to society. There, this is the era of settlement houses helping to um, sort of um, take in and then, of course, assimilate pros and cons of assimilation. New immigrants, right, is part of the progressive movement. We have people who are doing things for religious reasons or moral reasons or political reasons um, to benefit society, often meaning benefiting middle or upper class white individuals, mm -hmm. Christian individuals, right? So... I think that is is entirely indicative of of this this movement of the that era, um, and I think um, you know this this industry that's emerging um, is is playing right into that is is looking to benefit middle and upper income uh, earners, right? By creating new neighborhoods, and it's a code of ethics, right? It's not a list of rules. It's it's what's ethical about yeah yeah. Oh, that's about a great this point. Organization, that's a great right? point. Right? It's, it's, not only shouldn't you do that, it's wrong for you to do that, right? Ethically, um, you'd be hurting the organization, you'd be hurting your community to be doing that. Um, I think has a, a bigger weight to it than just, well, you, you shouldn't do it. Right? Oh, that's a great point. You, it's This is what we expect a good person to do. Exactly. It, this is your moral obligation to do. So as we move as we move along, and I know we're, we're going quickly over 
You know, I mean, yeah. we're just like, all right, we're going to- Decades we're, are flying. Right, right. <laughs> is, um, is, is, so how do you take this structure? And then we have Johnson County kind of being developed. We have these, you know, platted, uh, this, this properties where the houses are all kind of more, a little more uniform and this big uh, kind of area that we're going to sell as a group, if you will. And then something happens remarkably after the Great Depression, and that puts it on steroids. This whole plan, these planned communities, they're going to be all white. Blacks can't live there in addition to other uh, individuals, but particularly blacks can't live there. Uh, and then it gets on, on steroids. I'm going to call it on steroids, and that's through government uh, funding. Yeah. Could you briefly go through? Yeah, federalized. Yeah. So uh, whiteness becomes the selling point, right, for communities. So uh, adding in these restrictive covenants that say this property can never be owned, used, leased, rented, or occupied by African-Americans or Jewish people or Latinos or Asians in other areas of the country, Native Americans as well. Um, and so those areas are defined as white. And so going back to that idea that race and value are connected, that means you're going to have a good investment in these neighborhoods. There are other things that are going on too in this era, planning for permanence, right, is what Nichols calls it. J.C. Nichols calls it um, creating a permanent neighborhood that will never lose value for you. And operating through these professional organizations, they're lobbying the federal government saying we should create some federal zoning ideas um, out of this, this um, you know, these, these professional organization rules that we're creating and the things that we're doing. And when the Great Depression happens, people stop buying and building homes and all of a sudden it's a crisis for this new industry, right? So they continue to lobby the federal government, and when the New Deal's um, uh, New Deal initiatives are, are uh, uh, started, um, part of that is the Homeowners Loan Corporation, this new organization that um, is is solving the problem of uh, you know a thousand homeowners are being foreclosed on per day. So this organization, uh, government program, uses taxpayer money and issues a brand new mortgage from the government, from taxpayer money at the Treasury, to those homeowners who are in default, right? And it's a, a revolutionary mortgage product. It's a 20-year term. It has low monthly payments, even payments over the course of the loan, um, uh, and uh, low interest rates, and you can even access equity right, that you've, you've paid in. Uh, so it's a revolutionary idea. It makes homeownership a lot more accessible for people. And, and just to be clear, before this, the loans, to the extent there were home loans, yeah. it was a, a significant percentage down, and it was like 50%. a 50% was like a five-year loan at most, and yeah. it ballooned, and you're done. And if you can't make it, you're yes. done. And so. I know I wouldn't be able to buy a house like that. And so so now we're pushing it out to 20 years. 20 years, 10 or 20% down. When the FHA takes this up, the Uh Federal Housing Administration um, is created, the second mortgage program from the federal government. And they're offering these same terms to folks who are not yet homeowners to try to encourage homeownership. So 10 or 20% down, that same long mortgage period, same um, favorable terms, same equity, you know, available back to you as a loan if needed and things makes it a lot more accessible. You don't have to rent downtown anymore. You don't have to live on your generational farm in the in the countryside. You can buy a home somewhere, right? You can afford to do that. Save up 10% of the cost and um, you know, make a monthly payment that's probably less than what you were paying for rent. So this is the federalization of this policy because, or these uh, professional real estate ideas, because when the government creates the FHA program, they turn to NAREB, National Association of Real Estate. The, the ethics thing, the ethics we just looked the at. Code right. of ethics people, right, right and say, can you help the government create this mortgage program? We've not done this before. We need some parameters and some things defined for us. And so NAREB steps in as advisors to the federal government for creating the FHA and the HOLC, Polk. Um, and then eventually people who are in the leadership positions from NAREB um, and other real estate professions and things become bureaucrats within the FHA, top level you know, people managing the FHA program. 
Uh, and so they're bringing those private discriminatory ideas that we were talking about from that code of ethics and other things that they're doing at the time. And they're bringing that into um, this federal policy, shaping the way the government's going to be loaning money out. And I should say the FHA is not giving a, a mortgage loan. It's insuring it for the for the homeowner. So the bank has no qualms about giving a loan to somebody that previously they may have denied, right, for various reasons. So the government's on the hook then if that person and, defaults. And, and just to be clear, and then we'll, we'll close out with this segment, but just, just to be clear, the, the idea of race as it was codified or race affecting value of property is codified in the this board of ethics that we just, we talked about, makes its way into creating these planned communities, mm -hmm. which then makes its way into uh, home mortgages for those communities such that uh, essentially not only the, the realtors, but also the banks are prohibited from selling to and loaning to African-Americans. Yeah, so a key component of this in that first program, HOLC, is the creation of residential security maps. And this is what they're called. We call them redlining maps today, right? Going out and assessing, um, you know, we're talking about a long-term mortgage now, so we need to think about what's this house like today? What could it be like in 20 years? Is it going to maintain the value? Is the mortgage going to be good for that home in 20 years? But more importantly, what's the context of that? that home? What's the neighborhood like? What are quote unquote adverse influences? This is a term that's being used, right? Pretty ambiguous term um, that could be impacting that neighborhood, lowering value. So are you next to a railroad track or a highway? Are you next to a landfill or a factory? Um, or is your neighborhood next to the segregated area of town? Is there a pocket of Jewish families living nearby? Those are all defined as adverse influences. Um, and so when the government creates these red line maps, um, they're defining what areas are good neighborhoods, good investments for the government and for private banks, and which areas are risky investments, those redlined areas. So good is green, blue, yellow is risky, and red is deny. They'll deny mortgage applications um, from those areas. And so it, when you get the FHA handbook, it's saying you must have recorded restrictive covenants, uh, racially restrictive covenants on your property to qualify for an FHA mortgage. Your home, they would prefer to have it out in the suburbs where you can control all those things on the ground. The, the way the home is built, where the home is built, who can occupy that home, um, the cost of that home, that can all be controlled in new builds. So they'd prefer new builds, so suburbs, right, being built in this era. Um, and it's all very explicit. Um, you can go online and, and find the FHA underwriting manual and find these, um, find these uh, passages that are, that are talking in pretty explicit racial terms about who qualifies and who doesn't um, for this federal program that, re remember, everybody is paying into. This is taxpayer money. Right. Um, but it's only being given out to some populations and for building and for new homes and mortgages in some communities. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Andrew Gustafson, Curator of Interpretation at Johnson County Museum. We're talking to him about the exhibit Redlined. When we come back, we'll talk further about how racism essentially is baked into the land and then how we can recognize that further and then what we can do about it. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Catch the local showcase every Thursday night on KKFI where we highlight local musicians, poets, artists, and events from the Kansas City and surrounding areas. Curated and brought to you by a different KKFI host from week to week. That's the local showcase every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on 90.1 FM KKFI. Let's 
KKFI would like to send a heartfelt thank you to everyone who participated in this year's Winter Fun Drive. To our donors, volunteers, programmers, pitch partners, staff, and food donors, we couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. We haven't quite hit our overall goal yet, and there's still time to pledge your support. So go online to kkfi.org and donate now. It's the perfect time to support your community radio station as we approach our 35th anniversary of being on the air, coming up on Tuesday, February 28th. So please take time today and go to kkfi.org to donate. And thanks again for 35 years of community support. This is Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI. Our guest today is Andrew Gustafson. Andrew is the Curator of Interpretation at Johnson County Museum. We were talking in the first half hour about how red lining uh, came into being. And in this half hour, we're going to continue that discussion. You know, Andrew, one of the things uh, that I've learned from you and learned from the book that uh, Johnson County Museum put out was that in addition to excluding minorities, and particularly African Americans from white suburbs, that there was additional impact of limiting where African Americans could live, in that you had a uh, an increase in uh, demand, if you will, from the Great Migration, and then you had a narrowing of where individuals were allowed to live. Uh, uh, and so supply goes down and demand goes up. And so, so what is the natural result then there as to what African Americans are then paying for a more limited choice of where they can live? Yeah, going back to our economics classes from college, right? Um, so uh, if you have African-Americans, many of them in defined segregated areas uh, with pretty controlled boundaries, and they're unable to move outside those boundaries in any large number, you're going to be paying more for worse conditions, right? Um, talked about the Great Migration in the first half, right? So influx of African-Americans from the South into cities across the U.S. Um, that continues through the 1970s, right? So th through both world wars and those people who are migrating to cities are being pushed into the same neighborhoods. That area is growing slowly, very, very slowly, but not by much, right? And so you have huge population numbers um, overcrowding um, to incredible extents in segregated areas and cities across the U.S. Um, because as um, communities are evolving, as suburbs are springing up around the outside of downtowns, we're thinking just outside midtown areas, so like Brookside, Waldo areas, right? Um, some of the east side, even at the time, um, those areas have racially restrictive covenants placed on them. So those neighborhoods are only open to being legally owned by white individuals. Um, as part of this, uh, you may or may not know about covenants, right? Things that govern your property, um, sometimes implemented by the developer, sometimes implemented by the person who owned it last. Things that you're legally responsible to obey, right? To carry out or, or um, uh, uh, operate under. Um, and there's a whole list of them, right? Some neighborhoods where your trash cans go, sure. where you, you know, well, I've, I've even heard like <laughs> how far your front door, color of your paint. I mean, the, the, paint colors, the, building materials, size of your home, minimum cost when you build your home, minimum size when you build that home. Uh, all those things are part of these covenants for communities, especially as we get into suburbs that are being built um, for automobiles, right? In the 1920s and 30s, <laughs> um, we see all kinds of covenants, and one of them is almost always this racially restrictive language. Um, and uh, that's not an idea that's created in Kansas City, but it's sort of in this perverse term, use of the word perfected in this area by J.C. Nichols and other developers, right? By putting it in this long list of rules that make it 
legally um, difficult to to overcome. Um, and so you have more and more racially restrictive covenants in this co these communities that are springing up as a, a ring around downtown. You're really limiting then populations of color to to living in downtown neighborhoods, um, to areas that maybe didn't have those restrictions placed on them or did, but then those white families, white people who were living in those homes have fled to the suburbs, right? And the other thing that flight, the other thing we talked about that, that you brought to my attention was not only did whites flee, but also investment fled so that, that, you know, a beautiful new home with beautiful new streets, you know, that's going to attract more money to yeah. keep it up than, than, than something that looks less well-kept, right? Or, or maybe potentially looks more rundown, whatever the reason may be. Yeah, that's right. So as you're building suburban communities, you have to invest in sewers and electricity and in roads and in schools. And so money is being directed to all these new building projects and there's not an infinite amount of money. So it's, it is being taken from other areas, right? Or that in same investments not being given to some areas, right? The amount of money that's being given is, is lessened. Um, and so, um, in this case, investment attracts investment and that continues to the present day in this idea of opportunity hoarding, uh, which we can get into later, but, um, um, yeah, it really starts to shape the way the communities are built. And interestingly for Kansas city, there's a, uh, some County lines involved and also state lines involved right. in this, right? So, um, it, it complicates the matter even, even further. But, but it also sounds like a, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So we begin with no... There's no economic basis uh, for uh, 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 correlating race with right. with uh, property value. Right. But then we get to a situation where if every the whites flee, the money flees, uh, African American community are set, are pushed into a certain area and have to remain there, and no money's going in. Mm -hmm. That that area then becomes, and I'll use the term, blighted. I guess. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's that what term. the government is using at the time, right? So your businesses are pulling out. You're not going down downtown to shop in department stores anymore. You go to the malls. You don't go to restaurants downtown, you go to shopping centers, right, on the suburbs. Um, <clears throat> so the downtown areas begin to be called the hole in the donut, right, where there's little activity economically going on. People drive down there to work and then drive back out to the suburbs at night. Um, white people, I should right. say, people in the suburbs. Um, and uh, if you're not giving investment to neighborhoods where people of color are living, those areas can't get better. They're only going to get um, more dilapidated, right, with more people coming in, using the same infrastructure, uh, over several decades, it's not being renewed. So yeah, you're going to end up with what the government starts to call blight. The Urban Land Institute is working with the federal government to say, how can we fix this problem of downtowns? Uh, we have economic stagnation. We don't have many businesses there. People don't want to live there. Um, you know, what's wrong with downtowns? Well, their study shows suburbanization is what's wrong with downtowns, right. right? And so they decide to fix that by this idea of urban renewal, right? Going back in and sort of clear-cutting the ground there, demolishing these blighted structures, these dilapidated structures, whether they're businesses or homes, um, and building anew, starting something different, starting new investment in that area. Um, and that's a whole federal, state, and also local system that's that's created, this urban renewal system, um, that uh, is really detrimental to, prop, uh, to, to communities of color who are sort of, um, to use one historian's term, warehoused in downtowns, right? Well, and, and I was thinking about this, and this goes back to a question I was uh, asking myself and asking the listeners, you know, how did you get to work today? So one of the ways I get to work, there's pretty much only two, but the main ways is 71 Highway, which is Bruce R. Watkins. And, you know, I remember I was lamenting to you, and and as we talked through this, that, you know, at the end of the day, I want to get home. At the beginning of the day, I want to get I want to get to work, and I got to stop at these stoplights or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and you brought up an interesting point about this, and 
I want to read a quote from Bruce R. Watkins, who was a city councilor that was in your the, the book that you helped put together. One of the city's first black city councilors. One of the right. okay, okay. and it says, quote, I can see no value of this freeway uh, to this immediate community outside of allowing those who moved outside of the city to get downtown faster without driving through our community. So, but that's Bruce R. Watkins, and I drive down Bruce R. Watkins. How, but he said, how do I, how do, yeah. how do I reconcile those two? Give us a little bit of insight. Yeah, yeah. So Bruce R. Watkins is actually part of a coalition of people who were against 71 Highway going through the east side. And the east side in Kansas City is the segregated portion right. Right, of Kansas City, where the communities of color were living, black people especially. Uh, so he was leading the charge against this highway. And they got the highway reduced from being proposed as 8 to 10 lanes wide express. So it would change flow based on the time of day going into the southeast suburbs. Um, to now we see it as four to six lanes wide. We have garden medians. We have those stoplights you were talking about, pedestrian bridges for access across and things, things that make it accessible for that community that's literally divided by this highway, right? But he dies during the process of fighting the highway. And the city, um, to get support from the community, names it for him um, to get support for this highway. It, uh, you know, the, the path of that highway is cleared in the 1970s, the late 70s and early 80s. So businesses and churches and homes are being demolished for the highway to be built, but it's not finished until the early 2000s, right? So there's this disconnected community, displaced people and businesses um, for 20 or 25 years before that highway is finally finished, right? Um, and I think that's really indicative of urban renewal projects, highway construction projects. The Urban Land Institute is working with the federal government saying, when you're building this federal highway system, you know, this amazing new thing in the 50s and 60s, um, target those redlined areas, target the blighted areas, um, the areas of the town that uh, look dilapidated, remove them by putting highways there, by putting housing projects there, um, by clear cutting them with programs called slum clearance, right? Um, and start again. But, but as, so I'm, as I'm driving down 71 tomorrow, let's say, uh, it, and, it, and it didn't dawn on me, I mean, I'd, I'd heard a little bit about this before, but I am passing through and over places where yes. homes, and churches yes. and businesses once were. It literally, we, it literally, we all raised a community to the ground to build a highway through so I could wind up today taking a, a faster trip from where I live out south down to Kansas City. That's right. And if I can just expand on that, um, 70 goes across the top portion of what was the 12th to 18th and Vine District. Well, find streets between 12 and 15 today, most of them have been removed for access to 70 highway, uh, 70, Interstate 70. Um, 35 going down the west side cuts down the middle north and south through the Latino west side. But then it also cuts east and west across going into Wyandotte and then eventually Johnson County. Look at 670 as it goes through Kansas City, Kansas, goes right through the middle of Strawberry Hill neighborhood, which was an immigrant community. Um, take a look at uh, uh, 635 and some of the highways in, in Kansas City, Kansas going right through the middle of Quindaro neighborhood, historic African-American community, going back to the founding of the Kansas you know, territory. Um, this is not Kansas City alone, right? Um, when I drove home for Christmas this year to Western New York, every city I went through, you go on a loop around that town, a lot of those are built on areas that were communities of color, um, where they were um, segregated into those areas and then targeted through urban removal. And there's several slogans around that, right? There, one slogan around it is um, from African-American communities is Negro removal um, instead of urban renewal, right? Another is white men's roads through black men's homes. It's an anti-highway slogan coming mm -hmm. out of Washington, D.C. in 1969. So 
um, yeah, this is this is also a national history, right? The communities that gave way so that highways could be built um, for folks to be able to move easier across the city landscape, right? So I can tell you that anecdotally, and I'd ask hopefully for some from from some data potentially, but anecdotally, so I grew up in Johnson County, I go to Shawnee Mission South, and you know maybe I knew one person of color, maybe nobody on my block. I didn't know there nobody lived anywhere near me that I knew of. Maybe at my high school, one individual I knew. It would it would seem anecdotally from my experience that 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 the redlining that that was put in place in the early 20s and 30s potentially and and further on with and then we have the the loan programs that kind of put it on steroids if you will yeah that that structure essentially still exists today maybe not with the covenants although the covenants may be there they're not being enforced but that that still exists today are we able to look at these red line maps that you're talking about from almost 100 years ago now and to say oh it's that nothing's really changed that much or yeah the legacies are are um, pretty far reaching and pretty tied to that redlining map right so to be clear racially restrictive covenants are unenforceable after right. 1948 1968 stops this this federal system of disinvestment this redlining system um in areas of cities um and yet that unquestioned assumption about race and value being connected in many ways persists in in the banking industry, in the real estate industry, we see um, that continue in many ways through the present day. You can find all sorts of headlines about banks being fined for uh, essentially redlining communities and inequitable access to banking. We can see it in headlines coming out as, as recently as 2019, thinking about Newsday did a big report on Long Island about racial steering, real estate you know agents who are directing certain races to certain areas and the homes they're showing them. Um, these things are happening nationally still, right? Um, and so that unquestioned assumption, though, is in you and me, too, about what areas of town are good. Somebody moves to town, where right. would you recommend they live? Uh, they have children, what schools would you recommend they go to? Um, that unquestioned assumption is is coming out of this history that we've been talking about for 40 minutes now, right? And it's still impacting the way we think about our built environment, our cityscape, um, and still, in large part, um, regulating almost. Regulating might be too strong a word, but defining how we think about where we can live based on who we are, right? And so these legacies then coming from this history are are pretty uh, stark. And this is a, a section of the exhibit that we almost didn't include. We're historians, and so talking about present day is a little uncomfortable for us, but um, it's, it's this natural extension of redlining is to look back from today's perspective and see what are the things that have been impacted by 34 years of government not giving money local, federal, state-level government, and also private industry not giving money to neighborhoods. So we can look at maps that, are, that show in Kansas City, um, from the Kansas City Health Department, you can go online and see some of these economic hardship. Um, there's different factors that go into these indices, but you can look at that map. It even uses the same colors, <clears throat> excuse me, red to green, for most hard-off to, you know, relatively not economically hard-off, and it pretty much mirrors that red line map for Kansas City. You can look at um, people who own vehicles or no vehicle households and see that map. You can look at uh, health maps for obesity and look at that. You can see uh, education there. And then the one that really hit us the hardest was um, life expectancy. You can look at this map for Kansas City area and see uh, pretty disparate life expectancies for areas of town. And it correlates. If you look at areas that were green lines, those J.C. Nickel developed neighborhoods along Country Club Plaza, the Country Club District, your life expectancy there is 85 years on average from when you're born, right? 
can look less than two miles away just across Troost Avenue um, and look at neighborhoods that were part of the segregated areas, the redlined areas of town, um, and see that your life expectancy there at birth is 69 years. Uh -huh. 16 years of life difference, less than two miles apart. Um, it goes back to that disinvestment and what your opportunities are. So this is um, social determinants of health, right? Do you have reliable transportation? Do you have well-funded public schools? Do you have uh, a good-paying job uh, with health insurance, easy access to health care in your community, uh, fresh fruits and vegetables and affordable grocery stores in your community? Uh, all these different things and more, right? The quality of your homes, the safety of your homes and your infrastructure and green spaces or no green spaces, all of this ties into who we are as a, a living individual. What's our health like and what's our what's our expects, uh, expectation for, for duration of life um, is impacted by whether your community has had investment or not in it and to what extent, right? And so all of these things you're talking about, they all correlate to the, the red line maps to, yeah. to where it's, yeah. it's clear that the the redlining of, you know, however many years ago, which which was then instituted by the federal government, has has exists today very much so in terms of impact yeah. to the individual. And this is true, again, not just in Kansas. Sure, sure. You can look at this for any city. And there are lots of sociologists and historians and scientists who are doing this work right now and have done this work in the last 10 years. Um, and you can see the correlations. It's it's pretty remarkable, really, to look at these maps. You know, I uh, I, I don't know if I was looking at your book or or reading something that you had directed me towards, but but even the temperature of the streets are yeah. different because, now I know in Leewood, where I grew up, beautiful tree-lined streets. Well, it didn't dawn on me. They're beautiful to look at. You drive down the street, but it, the shade provides, and I don't know what else, but I guess a lower temperature, which has some impact on all of us. Yeah, uh, so heat, uh, heat islands downtown, right? So if uh, your local government's not investing in downtown neighborhoods, there's probably not a great park infrastructure in many of those areas. Um, if a tree dies on the side of the road there, it might just be cut down, right? You have more paved surfaces, more empty lots uh, in those areas, so it's hotter downtown. Uh, and in suburbs, you often have this beautiful canopy, Overland Park, um, when a, a tree city, some sort of a, a award, you know, designation while we were researching this exhibit for completely tree-covered streets, which are gorgeous, right? And a lot of these, a lot of communities have rules about maintaining tree cover. Yeah. And there were, you know, sort of rules from the Nichols uh, company that were saying, this is your tree, it's this type, you must do this and this and this to take care of. This brand new tree we've gifted to you as a new homeowner, right? Uh, that was part of the exhibit. Um, but so, yeah, so that really, it, it plays into the temperature in your neighborhood. But there's also scientists are looking at other things that tree cover do. Uh, tree cover and green space and, and um, nature, fresh air and things. Um, playing into, uh, you know, levels of uh, tension and uh, aggression in communities and plays into some of that stuff too. So it's not just, you know, how hot is it in my neighborhood today? But even that is pretty remarkable. It can be up to uh, five degrees over the course of a year difference in temperature between these neighborhoods. On the high end, it's like 12 degrees between wow. a previously green and red line neighborhood. So what, what uh, you know, but as we come to a close, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. At the end, I want to let everyone know kind of where they can go to learn more. But so I was thinking about this uh, as I'm preparing for the show, and I was we I enjoyed coffee with you, and and uh, I enjoyed reading your book and all the resources. But yet at the end of today, I'm going to drive back down Bruce R. Watkins to my suburb, and which we live close to my in-laws and my parents, and there's a school nearby, and my friends are out there, and then I'm like, well, I'm not moving. 
I mean, I, I guess maybe financially, I, I, I don't know if I could, but, but I mean, the joke yeah, was when we yeah. bought this house, I want him to install a mausoleum there because I'm not moving again. I, I don't want to go anywhere else. And so there's this inertia there almost. And then I'm thinking, well, my God, if I'm not moving, so what, I'm going to do a radio show on it, maybe getting some Facebook fights over it? And then that's not helping anybody. That's not doing anything. And so part of me is, I, I don't know, I, helpless is the wrong word, certainly. But but uh, but then I'm like, God, this is really important. But then, David, you're still going to drive down that highway to work. And so and so, do you have an answer for that? I, I Certainly, I see the wrong here. I want to do something. I want to do something more than just a radio show about it. But yet... Yeah. I feel, I guess, I'm going to say the word helpless then on what to do because I can't change the structure. I can, but I'm not going to change the structure of my life based on this issue. And I have a feeling there's a lot of other individuals out there that feel similar to me. Yeah, it's hard to see sometimes the impact of the individual when it's such a large, you know, it took it took private enterprise and professional organizations and local, state, and federal governments to create the system over a period of decades. And so it's going to take uh, everyone, right? Um, again, to try to undo some of this harm and undo some of this these legacies of the system, and so being involved in your community, right, is probably it seems like a silly thing, but voting in local elections, you know, thinking about zoning and thinking about your community's bylaws, and um, um, you know, being involved in in elections and things, um, and and informing yourself. Um, for those elections and and being aware of this history, right? So that you can start to make different decisions and and think differently. And I'm not being prescriptive. Sure, sure, I understand. Me, but uh, you know, somebody came through in a tour and and put it a a good way. If you're really interested in the environment and you want to do good for the world through your love of the environment, think about what you can do. If you're interested in this topic and and remedying some of these legacies, think about what you can do that's environmental that ties back to this legacy of redlining. So tree cover and things like that, green spaces. If you're really um, passionate about making sure everybody has access to fresh food, you know, affordable food and not being in a food desert, you could look at some of those food deserts in, in cities across the U.S., right? And think about how you could be your um, time or efforts or money could be helpful in that way. Right. Um, so there, I think everybody has their own interests in life. And so figuring out how that can help um, undo some of this history is, is one way to go about it, right? Also thinking about where your time and money goes. Are you, are you, um, you know, um, going to Black-owned businesses, to businesses in areas of town that you wouldn't normally go to, or things like that? Again, not, you know, trying to tell everybody sure. how to live well, but, lives, but, but thinking outside of their box, because that box, has, as you started the show with, has been defined for you, right? Um, where your box is located and, and, and how you move within that space has been defined. So trying to think outside of that and, and uh, take a look at the wider. Community. Well, and, and I like that. And I think, you know, you and I, when we were, you and I had coffee to get ready for the show, you know, one of the things that I had brought up was this the often quote of, you know, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it. And, of course, I asked the question, why? Okay, great. That's a great phrase, but yeah. why is that? And as we're talking about this more and more, I, I hope I've come to an answer that, that you may agree, and this may be why you know history is important to you, is is the the unquestioned assumption is a dangerous thing, and and it would seem to me that however we're going to act, whatever choices we're going to make, that's for individuals to decide. I can't, I'm not going to sit here and tell them I don't know, mm. but it would seem that the one thing I would ask people to consider is to to always act intentionally if they're going to, 
I don't know. What do you? I mean, maybe that's yeah, maybe that's think, it. You know, for this topic, for the system of redlining, that unquestioned assumption is coming out of a generation or two removed from the Civil War, from slavery, right? And so there's a racial component of that, um, and there's some eugenics background, to all that too, right. right? That unquestioned assumption is is long removed from our lives today, and yet it still sort of impacts how we think about our cityscape and our our lived environment. And so, knowing that, uh, really, any um, any thoughts that we have thinking about why we think that way um, and what's the history of why we're thinking that way um, might help us think a little differently or be more secure in the way we're thinking. Right, or, or just be more aligned, that our actions are more aligned with our values, whatever those values hap- happen to be. I, I, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to educate me on the topic. I will tell you that I was talking to a friend of mine, two friends of mine who who are younger. I'm in some, I don't know what, gener- I'm in the generation before they started naming them, I think, and they're younger or whatever. But uh, I was telling about the show and they didn't know what redlining was. You know what I mean? And so I think, I, I really appreciate that. But I know uh, uh, if people want more information on this topic, if you could tell us where we could get go. Also, you, uh, the book you put out, which I bought and read entirely, was awesome. If you could talk briefly about that. And then um, and then maybe what's the next up uh, in Johnson County Museum? Yeah, sure. So. Um, the best place to go for resources right now is jcprd.com slash redlined with a D on the end, the name of the exhibit. Um, and that will have information. The show, of course, has closed, right? Closed January 7th. So I'm sorry about that. Um, but there's some next steps in that, too. Uh, but you can go there. You can see recordings of programs that we hosted. We had lots of community partners from other cultural organizations over that year, 2022, who hosted programs. Some of those recordings are there. There's also a list there of, of additional readings, blog posts, books, some videos online to watch, some other online resources. You can really dive into that red line map for Kansas City there. Uh, the book, uh, which is really ma- most of the text and many of the images and things from the exhibit, is available in the museum store here at the Johnson County Museum. And we're open Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. It's also available right now at nine libraries across the community and growing. So uh, available for checkout there, part of their permanent holdings, which is just so cool to me. Yeah. Um, so that's a, another resource. Um, and then I'll tell you, we're still working on this. I'm still receiving requests like yours to, to speak on this topic and for other organizations in the community and things. Um, and we're still working on this. We uh, you can find more information at that website, jcprd.com. So oh, red lines. So hold on, J. So JCPRD. Okay, that's Johnson County Park and Recreation District. That's where the oh, gee, sorry. Sits. Yeah, I know. I, maybe I shouldn't have been <laughs> complicated. No, that. jcprd.com slash redlined with a D. Okay, yep. all right. Um, we are uh, starting a fundraising initiative to turn this exhibit into something really high quality online that can be updated and take on different uh, life than it had in, a, in the built space. Yeah, we define our exhibits three to five years in the future. So this is not something we didn't intended to do. The book was something that we hadn't intended to do, but the community's um, uh, overwhelming support for this exhibit and uh, need and desire to know more and to share that history led us to publish that book uh, is leading us to create this online uh, resource. So. Uh, currently, there's a match from um, the Park and Recreation Foundation for Johnson County of $10,000. So if we raise $10,000, they'll match that. So we hope to be able to make that exhibit a, a thing online. But you can uh, really uh, Google or search uh, in your favorite search engine, Redlined, and find all sorts of, of resources out there to learn more. All right. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Appreciate being here. Thank you. This is David Bell, and you're listening to Jaws of Justice on 90.1 KKFI.
filled me with hope about the next chapter. The great American story When you used your power To make a difference In our society Now it's your turn To let Come together all people of the world in the name of love Yes, it's your turn to let freedom ring Come together It doesn't matter whether we are black or white, Latino, Asian, American, or Native American. It doesn't matter whether we are straight or gay. We are one people. We are one family. We all live in the same house. Be bold. Be courageous. Stand up. Speak up. Speak out. And find a way to create the beloved community, the beloved world, a world of peace. enjoyed today's show and that we leave you with something to think about, something to talk to your neighbors about, and a reason to get involved. As always, the opinions expressed are those of the host and the guests of Jaws of Justice Radio, not of KKFI, the Midcoast Radio Project Incorporated, its staff, or volunteers. You can find our calendar of events and a link to our show episodes on the Jaws of Justice Radio Facebook page. You can always listen to us live and find our podcast on the KKFI website, kkfi.org. If you have a show idea or want to help produce the show, you can send an email inquiry or comment to kkfi.org forward slash contact. This is Jeff reminding you our outro music is Higher Ground from the Playing for Change CD.